opening scriptures in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, Psalm 90. The word of God from Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? Whereas the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our heart to wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein you have afflicted us and the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is a pilgrim's prayer. It's ascribed to Moses, who led Israel 40 years to the Sinai wilderness. Moses lived about 500 years before David. So Psalm 90 may be the oldest psalm in the Psalter. Psalm 90 opens the fourth book of the five books of the Psalter. The fourth book, Psalm 90 through, through 106. In that section, that book is distinguished as Comfort in God's faithfulness. Two other psalms were written by Moses. 
In Exodus 15 is the Song of Triumph, composed to celebrate the Lord's victory by drowning Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. In Deuteronomy 32 is the Song of Moses, composed to commemorate God's steadfast faithfulness to his faltering people. The title of the psalm, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God, identifies this as a poem and intercession by Moses for the coming generations. Moses is described as a man of God six times in the scriptures. It implies that Moses' high character and office point us to the inspired authority of this psalm. His words here are to be reverently heeded as the word of God himself. This title, a man of God, has also been applied to Elijah, Elisha, David in the Old Testament, and Timothy in the New Testament, man of God. The time of the psalm most likely toward the close of the years of the wandering in the desert, Moses had witnessed God's mercy and he had, as God had met the physical and spiritual needs in the desert. Moses had endured God's judgment as the Lord prolonged the days in the wilderness because of their sin. And as Moses remembered the hardship and the sorrows that befell the nation of Israel, he turned to God in prayer, asking for relief. In Psalm 90, Moses prays for Israel, wanting them to learn an important lesson that he learned in the wilderness. The journey through the wilderness to the promised land could have taken a few weeks, but it took 40 years because God judged Israel for their unbelief. The lesson is that we are to live in the light of eternity. Psalm 90 gives us an eternal perspective on our short life. In this psalm, Moses sets forth three truths. The greatness of God, verses 1 and 2. The gravity of God, verses 3 through 11. And the grace of God, verses 12 through 17. These truths illustrate the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Adoration is expressed in the first part in the greatness of God. Confession is expressed in the second part on the gravity of God. And thanksgiving and supplication are expressed in the third part on the grace of God. The first movement in verses 1 and 2, the greatness of God. To many people, God is merely an appendix to life, something to be added on after everything else is taken care of. To others, God is a convenience, someone to help them out of their worst troubles, to forgive their sins from time to time. They say, that's what God is for, to help people out of trouble and to forgive their sins. Such people are not really worshipers of God. They are just idolaters. They have made a God in their own image, and they use it for their own purposes. How different is the God presented in this psalm? 
verses 1 and 2 state the greatness of God first by expressing his imminence, that he is deeply involved with his people, and second, by expressing his transcendence, that he is greatly above, exalted above his creation. Verse 1, think of the imminence, the closeness of God. The first word, Lord, is the name that God gives himself as the head of the covenant. He is the Lord of his creation in general and the Lord of his people in particular. He is the Lord who has established his control over his people, his authority upon his people, and his presence with his people. Self-revealing God is the potentate, sovereign, monarch, or covenant head. As covenant head, he is deeply involved with his people. He is imminent, as expressed in verse 1. As covenant head, he is greatly exalted above his people. He is transcendent, as expressed in verse 2. The Lord is a personal God. Where he's addressed as thou or you. Many people think of God as a natural force, power, influence, properly referred to as it. But the Bible speaks of God as he, him, and addresses God as thou or you. The Bible speaks of God as a person, and this personal God reveals himself in a variety of ways. A summary of it is given in Hebrews. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which states, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. We are exposed to this living and true God in his creation, in his scripture, and in our conscience. Now, the blessed relationship that we may have with God is, can be described in various ways. Most important to Moses is that God is our dwelling place. Since the call of Abraham, God's people have been strangers, sojourners, and pilgrims. Yet while the patriarchs were pilgrims and the Israelites were captive in Egypt for 400 years and the tabernacle was recently constructed, still in all generations, Moses describes the Lord as their dwelling place. He is intimately involved with his people. He is imminent. The fullness of the dwelling place would be realized by Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus declares, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you. Jesus exhorts, abide in me and I in you. John summarizes by writing, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The Lord is the dwelling place of his people. He is imminent. 
Verse 2 are expressions of his transcendence, that God is greatly exalted above his creation. The transcendence of God, his exaltation, his mysteriousness, has been misunderstood as God being infinitely removed from creation, being so far from us, so different from us, so wholly other, so wholly hidden, that we can have no knowledge of him and can make no true statement about him. Such a God has not revealed himself to us, for it does not exist. But God is presented here as absolutely distinct from the created universe. First, there was God. Then afterwards, there existed the world. The mountains had a beginning. God always was. Therefore, God is distinct from creation. He is not tied up or limited by his creation. He is the creator, high and lifted up, always distinct from all things created. The idea is that he always was and ever will be God. The God, the true God, the only God, the unchangeable God. The creation of the universe made no change in him. Its destruction would not vary his mode of existence or make him anything different. There could be nothing more absolute and unambiguous in the declaration as there could not be anything more sublime as to the eternity of God. Our mind cannot take in the grander thought than this. One eternal, immutable being, he is transcendent. God is working out his purposes, his eternal purposes, throughout all the universe, throughout all history, throughout all the earth. He is a great God. And so you are living out life today in the context, in the realm of God's achieving his eternal purposes. Meditate on the greatness of God revealed in his imminence and in his transcendence. The second movement of Psalm 90 expresses the gravity of God. Verses 3 through 11. Martin Luther wrote, Just as Moses acts in teaching the law, so does he in this psalm, for he preaches death, sin, and condemnation in order that he may alarm the proud who are secure in their sins that he may set before their eyes their sins and evil. This psalm gives us an eternal perspective on our short life by describing the measure, mortality, and miseries of man. The measure of man, verses 3 and 4. Our destiny is determined by God. Moses recognized a significant difference between God and man. God is eternal, infinite, but men have turned back to dust. <coughs> Their days are only a flicker in eternity. The psalmist expresses God as the actual determiner of all events that come to pass. Death 
is the wages of sin. Death is the sacrament of sin. It is the public invisible sign that we are sinners and that we have fallen short of the glory of God. To get a sense of the seriousness of sin, consider what Moses witnessed as recorded in Numbers chapter 40. There, Moses' sister Miriam died. Moses' brother Aaron died. Moses sinned against God by striking the rock instead of speaking to it, resulting in Moses dying in the wilderness. Everyone faces God's judgment, which is death. Moses also witnessed that every person 20 years old and older who came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. With two exceptions, Caleb and Joshua. In Exodus 12, verse 37, records that 600,000 men left Egypt. 600,000 men. Had the same number of women, and we have 1,200,000 people. <coughs> and they die in 38 and a half years. That gives us 85 people per day died allowing 12 hours maximum for funerals, gives an average of seven funerals per hour, a continuous foreboding and reminder of God's punishment for them for their unbelief and rebellion. Death reminds us of the rebellion of humanity against their creator. Our brevity is determined by God. God is the eternal God. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. He is above all distinctions of time, past, present, future, are all equally present to him. God thinks of these only in terms as they relate to us as creatures. <clears throat> For God himself, all is an eternal present. All points in created time are equally present to him. The psalmist expressed this truth not in abstract philosophical terms, but by a figure of a thousand years compared to a watch in the night. The measure of man. Very brief. Moving on to verses 5 and 6, the mortality of man. It's expressed by three metaphors, the mortality of man. Our duration is like a sudden flood, an illusion of a dream <coughs> and grass that is bowed. As when a torrent rushes down the riverbed and bears all before it, so does the Lord bear away by death all of succeeding generations. <clears throat> Before God, men must appear as unreal, as dreams in the night, as phantoms of sleep. Only, not only are there plans and devices like sleep, but we ourselves are such. <coughs> as grass is green, 
in the morning and hay at night. Some interchange from health to corruption in a few hours. Here's the history of grass. Sown, grown, blown, moon, gone. In the history of man is not much more. What is there on earth more frail than we? The mortality of man. The section on the gravity of God intensifies by speaking of the miseries of man, verses 7 through 11. And this is outlined in two phases. The first cause of man's misery is man's sin, verses 7 through 9. And the operating cause is God's wrath, verses 10 through 11. The final cause is man's sin. And we cannot always say that sin, that, that death in a specific case is directly the result of God's anger. But we can say that death always, and death in general, should be regarded as evidence of divine displeasure against the sins of man. In verse 7, For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath, we are terrified expresses the vigor of God's wrath, and we are without resources. In verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance, express the justice of God's wrath, and we are without excuse. Some would represent God as passing by sin because he is too loving to keep his word of threatening against transgressors. The wrath of God is the result of man's sins. We have only ourselves to blame. And in that, we are the prey of death. Our sad life and speedy death would be inexplicable if it were not that the revelation tells us the wages of sin is death. So deep-seated is our corruption that there are depths of sin in us explored by God alone. Even a believer, though not conscious of sin, dares not to acquit himself as if he were free from it before God. But we recognize the truth that Paul states in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 5. He who judges is the Lord. Therefore the believer judges nothing before the time until the Lord come who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. God not only punishes our notorious and scandalous sins, which his honor is obligated to do, but even our secret lusts, murmurings, unbelief, apostasy, and idolatry of the heart. Though these are hid from the eyes of men, they are set before God, and brought to light by his judgment, verse 8. The first sentence of verse 9 is not intended for believers to quote. 
as though it applied to them, for our days are all passed away amidst the loving kindness of the Lord. Even as David says in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The sinfulness of man. The operating cause is God's wrath. Our life expectancy, verse 10, is contrasted with the patriarchs who lived before the flood, some who lived almost a thousand years. But that's nothing when compared to eternity. Yet life is long enough for virtue and piety and too long for vice and blasphemy. Man generally does not pay attention to the divine law of sin and retribution. Who knows the power of your anger? One reason for this is that the full blunt of God's anger is withheld and unknown to man. The frustrations of life are explained away or accepted as long as they are not too many problems. The greatness of God's wrath should invoke fear. And that fear should be commensurate with God's wrath. Scripture, when it depicts God's wrath against sin, never uses an hyperbole. It would be impossible to exaggerate God's wrath. How great is God's anger? It is as great as the gap between the honor he deserves and the honor we actually give him. How much honor does he deserve? The infinite power and perfection of God everlasting deserves complete obedience and total adoration. How much honor do we give him? Not much. Now, if someone deserves a small amount of honor, it might be a small sin not to honor him. But if you dishonor and disobey someone whose honor is infinite and eternal, your sin is infinitely horrible. God's majesty and might and honor are infinite and everlasting. And so his wrath against those who fail to honor him is also infinite and everlasting. That is why the just punishment for sin is not just physical death, but also everlasting anguish in hell, as his wrath is as great as the fear that is due to him. But who really believes this? Who knows the power of God's anger? Do you? Do you know how fierce and fiery God's anger is against evil. Do you have a fear that matches the wrath, the force of his wrath? Ironic as it may sound, the more we fear God, the less we have to fear. And the less we fear him, the more we ought to be afraid. Miseries of man. So this central section of Psalm 90 has taken us through the measure of mortality and the miseries of man and gives us a sense of the gravity of God. Once we have seen our frailty in the light of God's eternity and our sinfulness in the light of God's holiness, we can now join with Moses in asking the Lord to relent, to turn aside his wrath, and to deal with us in mercy, the grace of God. 
verses 12 through 17. The third movement expresses that grace of God. We may identify four petitions, the prayer for wisdom, for mercy, for joy, and for blessing. Verse 12 contains a prayer for wisdom. The wisdom meant is that which flows from a right consideration of the brevity of life and our guiltiness as the cause of God's anger against us and consists in fearing God and departing from evil. John Calvin made some striking remarks about numbering our days. Calvin said that even small children know how to count on their fingers, but we're too stupid to count how short our life is. Some people are experts in arithmetic, said Calvin, and can precisely and accurately understand and investigate millions of millions, but they can't seem to count to 80. It is a monstrous thing, Calvin added, that people can measure how many feet the moon is from the earth and how far the planets are from each other, but they can't measure 70 years in their own case. We must pray for wisdom. Prayer for mercy, verse 13. God is said to repent when, having first vindicated his justice in punishing sin, he then gives the sinner joy instead of sadness. The language is phenomenal and relates to things as they appear to us. God is the same unchanging God of justice and of love alike when he comforts us as when he punishes us. We must pray for mercy. In verses 14 and 15 is a prayer for joy. The prayer is based on the great principle in providential goodness by which the Lord puts the good over against the evil in due measure. Great trials enable us to bear great joy and may be regarded as the herald of extraordinary grace. God's dealings are according to scale, small lives are small throughout, and great histories are great both in sorrow and happiness. Where there are highs and greats of great of history, there are also both sorrows and happiness. There are high hills, and there are also deep valleys. We must pray for joy. The last petition is the petition for blessing, verses 16 and 17. Now it's worth noticing that this prayer is answered in more than one way. Although the first generation fell in the wilderness, Yet the labors of Moses and his companions were blessed in the second generation. These were most devoted to God of any generation that Israel ever saw. A greater blessing for the following generations was when Moses compiled and completed the Pentateuch, the book of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
The chronicle of what happened before Moses is recorded in Genesis. And in Moses' lifetime, the pivotal deliverance of God's people and the revelation of God's law is recounted. Moses' literary work literally appeared unto God's servants. In a similar spirit, we ask God to establish the work of our hands. We may not always see the results. Our comfort in sowing is the belief that our children should reap. In the most profound way, our Lord Jesus is beholding the work of his hands by his atoning sacrifice. As Isaiah 53 verse 11 prophesied, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This closing prayer is distinct in that it repeats itself. It's a prayer that Moses offers twice. It's a double repetition. It's a climax of a psalm. He repeats himself, which is the biblical way of making an exclamation point. Think of this as the way that the prayer is answered in the life of Jesus Christ. He trusted the Father to build a church, to raise him from the dead, to send out his spirit to do the work. Uh, to do his work in the world. Moses has asked God to alleviate their sorrows and to bring refreshment to the people because life is short and most of their lives have been striving in the wilderness. Moses asked God to show them compassion. Likewise, we should not be impatient for Christ to come for though it may seem to take a long time, it is not long for God. In the meantime, we should keep our lives in accordance with God's ways, that we may be happy and joyful during the brief time we spend on earth. A prayer for wisdom, mercy, joy, and blessing conclude the section on the grace of God. Before his conversion, Martin Luther admitted that he could not read through Psalm 90. When he was a monk, he said that when he came to Psalm 90, he put the book down. He could not take it anymore. He became aware of his own brief life and God's just judgment. It drove him to despair. But afterwards, Luther understood the gospel. God's anger was intended to bring about our salvation. God dealt with his anger by heaving it upon his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus knows the anger of God for his people so that they would not experience God's wrath. Therefore, humble yourself before God everlasting. Admit your sin. Trust in Jesus. Rest in God's promise to give eternal life to all who believe in him. Then honor and obey the Lord and seek his glory above all else. God is working out his eternal purpose throughout the universe, throughout all history, throughout all the earth. He is a great God, and so you are living your life today in the context, in the realm of God achieving his eternal purpose. 
not only worldly people, but even church members fail to take God seriously. The modern church has been vaccinated with a mild variety of Christianity and is now immune to the real thing. Our easygoing, informal, convenient religion does not take God seriously. Only when God is reckoned with at every point of life do we take him seriously. The message of Psalm 90 is not work harder. There's no comfort in that. Rather, the message is that because God has worked to create and to preserve a covenant people, he will bless us and bless the work of our hands. Here is the beginning of real wisdom and comfort. Our priority is to enter into God's eternal purpose for our life. That eternal purpose is for us to be with Christ, for us to be with the one who bought us with his own blood. That is what we want. Death is simply an entrance into the appointment that God had for us before the beginning of time, for us to be with Christ forever. So the Apostle Paul confesses in Philippians 1 verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is this true for you? Live in the light of eternity. God's greatness, gravity, and grace is revealed in a pilgrim's prayer. We gather before you, Lord God, with renewed astonishment, the accuracy by which you can disclose our own hearts unto ourselves, and the wonder of the dominance of your grace to bring us to a place in which we can trust and rely upon you. We know that we are weak. We know that we are sinful. But until... We read the words of Moses, we did not realize how deep and destructive that sin is. We've begun to see that destruction and that evil around us in our current day. And we plead, Lord God, that in your prevailing grace, you might restrain that evil internationally as well as personally. And that by these aggravations, the wonder of the saving work of Jesus Christ might be made clear and applicable internationally and personally. We plead for your grace and for your understanding. We plead in Jesus' name. Amen.